Welcome and thank you for joining us on uh, Disrupt TV. My name is Paula Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. Ray and I and our distinguished guests will do our best to answer your questions. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, who's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, uh, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, and one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, not from Davos, this is our fourth show this week, but Ray is home now to uh, Disrupt TV. Hi, Ray. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy to be back here in uh, Cupertino, California. Uh, welcome to my other co-host, Bala Ashkar. And guess what? He is the top CIO, CMO follow on Twitter. You can follow him at V-A-L-A-A-F-S-H-A-R. He's also the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, an author and a person like us, curious as to what's new and what's happening in the world. So we've got some really cool startups to feature here in Silicon Valley. And we also got a really cool author, a best-selling person coming down the pike. So who do we have first today? What's going on? So we're going to have two introductions. Uh, we're going to start with Chris Wong. He's the CEO of LifeSite. Uh, Chris is a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur and a veteran operator, including extensive M&A and business development experience. He's founded eight companies and now leading LifeSite, which we're going to learn about. In addition to co-founding LifeSite, Chris served as the CEO of PathConnect, a private new media company who was an EVP and product officer at Agile Software, which was acquired by Oracle. And prior to that, VP of Products and Technology and Strategy at PeopleSoft. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Along with Chris, we also have the other co-founder of LifeSite, Yunjin Chang. She's the business development, uh, director of business development and co-founder of LifeSite. Uh, Yunjin uh, has invested and managed more than 40 startups and has been an angel investor as well. She's extensive international conference MC experience in Korea and extensive television industry experience, including her own TV shows. She was voted 2013's most promising female entrepreneur in Korea, which is amazing. You can follow Yoon Jin on Twitter at Y-O-O-N-G-I-N underscore C-H-A-N-G. Welcome, Chris and Yoon Jin to Disrupt TV. Oh, this is this going to be so much fun. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Hey, we are featuring really cool startups, things that are actually changing, things are category killers, things that are in different places. You guys fit that bill. Um, so, Chris, you know, what, what's, why did you start LifeSite? What's the problem behind uh, that you're trying to solve? And, and what, what's the, you know, what are the challenges that are in front of you? But, but tell us about the problems that you're trying to help customers with. Well, I'll kick it off and then I'll turn it over to Yunjin. So first of all, thanks for, thanks for that introduction. You said I started eight companies. No human being would have the, have the uh, courage to start eight companies. So it was pretty, pretty much three and then I jumped in the four. Yes, but I'll tell you though, this is, this is my eighth company. And for, for us, all of us, right, I think it's, it's the most meaningful one because of the mission. And I think this speaks a little bit to, to Ray's question. And, and the mission here is to really help individuals and families across the globe. And probably the best uh, best example of best way to describe what we do is through an example. So I have parents who are in their 80s. I have four children as well. And what's really interesting about when we started this company is that I can recall a conversation with my mom and dad where my mom wanted to sit us down. I have three brothers as well. And we were at the family dinner table on a Sunday. And then she talked about the fact that her and my dad had invested in, uh, in all this life insurance they had all this documentation, but none of us, my, myself or my three brothers, would sit down with them and actually go through that. 
And then as, as she was really, and it's really sad to see her mom start to cry, but as she was starting to cry, she went to the refrigerator and she pulled out this shoebox. And, and, and believe it or not, the shoebox had all the family documentation, right, that she and my dad had collected. And then she was just in tears, right, trying to figure out how she can actually share that shoebox with uh, myself and my brother. So if you can understand that or you have a loved one or you have that in your own family situation, then you understand why we started LifeSite and, and what our mission is. Because, um, I mean, the, the moral of that story is while none of us, right, are truly prepared for this or none of us can predict anything to happen, I think we can all agree that we aren't as prepared as we'd like to be, whether our information is organized, accessible, or available for not just us, but uh, our family members as well. Yeah. Um, I actually want to share a story that how Kim and me actually um, mm. got together and started mm. a company. Um, so I was in Korea as an investor, and we were actually going to start our own fund together to help entrepreneurs go global and connect, you know, both sides of the uh, world, U.S. and Korea. Um, but then one day he called me, and then that was the idea about LifeSite. Mm. And it just like, hit me because I had a whole document um, in my own shoebox, actually. <laughs> and then my mom has it and my dad has it. Every time my mom travels, she freaks out because she has to put this box in a safe place. So it, when he shared that idea, I was like, oh my God, like I have that you know, problem with even myself. And how come nobody's solving this problem? Probably every household is having a similar problem and they have no idea how to organize everything. And then when um, I saw actually, because I have a family in Japan, I remember how people in Japan, when they had an earthquake, they lost all the records. And I looked at a data that, you know, we had a 7,500 natural disaster over um, between 1980s to 2005, and it caused $1.2 trillion of loss. So that means like, you know, people are losing all their assets or records or, you know, all just like their legacy uh, so much from natural disasters. So it just like, you know, gave me a de idea that um, somebody needs to actually, you know, help those families. Somebody needs to help me to organize everything in a safe place, which, you know, nowadays it should be a digital form. So I told him then, you know, when he called me in 10 minutes, I'm packing my back. So I moved to state. Gonna she have literally to, was like, yes. a, like 15 minutes. She made the decision. Yes. Yeah, so like I had my crying mother, you know, she was like, are you serious? Like you're, you're not going to get married and start a company in, in the United States. <laughs> yeah. So like my mom actually did not talk to me for like three months. She had to go through the diligence of him. <laughs> and then, yes. And then I moved here, like just like that, because we believe in, what what we're trying to solve this is not just the u.s people's problem this is a global people everyone can relate to the story you know the the mission or the problem that we're trying to solve so so that's our story yeah that's amazing. So, so we're gonna get these pins that say instead of no software no shoe boxes <laughs> <laughs> hey, the refrigerator thing you missed too my mom believes that the refrigerator is the most fireproof place in the yeah. house and she's not wrong Okay, so that's, a, that's an interesting uh, description of how people think about security when they think about, you know, storing personal information. As you're developing this company, uh, how important was uh, privacy and security in terms of creating a solution where people feel comfortable sharing their personal uh, information? 
Yeah, so, so first of all, it's important to understand right. that what our application is, it's right. a, yeah. think of it as a digital safe deposit box. Uh, mm -hmm. Yesterday, a prospect called it a, a virtual lockbox, but it's a cloud-based application, ultra secure, but it truly is a collaborative application. So it's a collaborative application where we've got thousands of fields, dozens of predefined categories, uh, where uh, it's set up for individuals, their families, and advisors, right, to collaborate together. And it's just not document documents, but it's also information as well. So um, you're right, right? We get asked all the time around, why are we different from uh, Dropbox or you know, what is it about security? And when we uh, looked at, to design the system from day one, we had in mind the, the European data protection laws. Oh. So what we did was we designed the application such that the user is the one who owns the data. The user is the one who decides who gets to see their uh, information. And then what's nice is that every field in our system is privilege controlled. So we actually not only guard or, or allow um, conditional access, but also when people look at fields, you get a notification when either your wife is looking at a password who knows why, right? Or a kid <laughs> wants to look at a credit card number, right? Or your grandma and your, uh, or your mom or dad, right, are, are looking at some uh, updating their insurance. So that's our system is designed for that workflow. And it's always going to be a challenge, right, to, uh, to change behavior, you know, as we know. But we've done some pretty cool things with the user experience and some things with the devices, right, which allows to optimize it. But ultimately, we believe it's a team sport. So the more that we can make it collaborative, then the more people are participating in managing and putting the information in. Let's, Sounds let's like far safer than a refrigerator. Sounds much safer <laughs> than a refrigerator. <laughs> let's, let's go deeper. What are you talking about, like, like records? Like, are you talking like passports or medical stuff? Or like, what are these stages of life that you're capturing here? So we cover actually all the aspects of your life. Basically, yeah. it can be from medical, insurance, financial, real estate, even pets, actually. Um, the whole point of actually having LifeSite is because you don't want to have all kind of 10 different types of app to organize all the different types of information. Because, and it's also, if you have like different types of application or if you're using genetic cloud service to organize everything in a file system, it's very hard to share with people like your grandma, right? So we cover those um, aspects of all your life and then it's every category is, is a permission base that it's very easy to share with anyone you trust. And all the activity is, is notified to you that you have a peace of mind what other people are collaborating with, with your data. I, I think it's important also, Ray, that it's not sufficient just to have a storage area and then uh, fields that you fill in. You actually have to have a workflow which guides people to what's important. Right. Um, we've got a number of like prospects, for example, that have created IP around, this is what you need to do if you're going on a deployment, or this is what you need to do if you're having a kid. So we help users, guide users through everything they need to have in LifeSite, documentation and information-wise. So they get a checklist, kind of like a quick and type yeah. of interview questions to guide you how to get there, right? Yeah, so okay. we have like, like checklists for marriage, checklists for kids going to college, military deployment, and there's a whole list of the things that we actually even put the AI inside of that and then we pull out all the um, documents or information related to that checklist and also invite people who are related to that certain checklist. So which will really help you to prepare that life event. So, yep. so we thought about our friends in Marin, they got the big fires, had they had life site, what would have been different? 
Well, I, I think uh, we've actually had users give us a call, right, to thank us for building this application, or more sadly, they said they wish they had our application. So, I mean, one way to explain it is, is a particular user who actually gave, gave us a call and actually uh, thanked us for having the system. And the reason why she thanked us uh, for having the system was because she shared a story with us where her friend had 15 minutes to vacate her house. And all she was able to do was to take her iPhone and go to the three rooms in her house and actually do a pano, right, of the three rooms. And that's her only record of her property, right, in her home. So that's just one example of how it could be used. And another example, and, and we've got it on our roadmap now, is that uh, there's a lot of companies now who are trying to help the victims of the Napa fires reconstruct what they own. So one, uh, it was actually our, um, our CTO. Actually, what he had to do is he actually uh, said that he has records of this in Amazon, records of this at Costco. So what we're looking to do is actually looking at direct integration to kind of back build property or purchases that they had made and stored in LifeSite so that they can expose that to an insurance company and make claims. So these are great examples of not only like the Napa fires, right, but the disasters in Puerto Rico, right, and Eugene mentioned what's going on around the world in other countries as, as well. Let's talk you've got about a great organization. I just want to, you've got a great organization called the People Centered Internet, right? And we're excited to yes. look at doing something with you as well. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. In fact, the PCI folks are visiting, uh, Ray, I believe they're going to Puerto Rico uh, in February to oh, assess yeah. the situation there and yeah. see how we can help, uh, you know, accelerate the improving quality of life for the folks that are, some that are still without power, which is absolutely, which absolutely. Is ridiculous, but we'll leave those conversations aside. Uh, um, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, you're both entrepreneurs, um, the global ex experience. Can we talk about the startup landscape in Korea as it compares to Silicon Valley? What are some of the common commonalities that you see and some maybe distinct, unique differences? So, I mean, Oh, that's a question, actually. I get it all the time. Right? She's, the right per <laughs> she's the right person to ask that question. Too, um, so Korea is also, you know, very tech-savvy, and we're number one high-internet-speed um, country in the world. Yep. And, um, luckily, I was in the very first scene of the whole ecosystem. So Korea is definitely is trying to become one of the um, hub in Asia to the next Silicon Valley. Um, I think, I think entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter where you come from, they all have a similarity, you know, they have passion, they have mission, they have integrity. Um, but what I learned most from Silicon Valley is, um, it's like there's a flat communication, there's a more teamwork, and one other thing is like lots of documentation so that it can scale much faster. So. These days, I actually, I still manage more than 10 startups in Korea. And then every time I talk to those startups, I say, you have to find a way to document everything so that when you actually start to scale, everyone will jump in and know what you have already done and communicate well. So that's something that I think Korean startup or startup scene had to work on. And the other thing is analysis, data analysis. Um, I think we Asians, we have like, we have like a strong gut feeling or something. So a lot of, I think startups, <laughs> my startups also. Think, There's like, no sense of fear. Yeah. But America, like I realized that everything actually, like when you look at Google, everything is about data analysis. So I think it really helps once you start to have a, you know, accumulated data, it really helps you have a right decision and make a little 
uh, mistakes. So that's something I'm also learning. And also I think Asian, you know, startup, they have to adapt and then evolve more. Um, I can, I, yeah, this, what, what, what do you I think? Mean, she can go on and on, yeah. and on forever. Right? <laughs> I love it. It's terrific. So yeah. is, the, is, is some of that balance of quantitative analysis, analysis and qualitative and that experimental uh, culture, is that what guides LifeSite's roadmap? Understanding gut feel, what new enhancements your customers want, as well as looking at data and you mentioned AI, for example, to really guide your 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 future. Well, but I would tell you that that no matter how much data you have, right, it, the data is still a data point. Sure. Right? You have to blend it with years of experience as well as direct conversations with users to really really optimize you know market product fit. Um, I mean, a lot of people ask us the question, like, what's next for our company? And I think what we're most excited about, right, is to actually get this product in the hands of not only consumers, right, but in the hands of businesses. Wow. Because it gets really exciting, right, when you can start to, like, you're less going uphill and you're moving more downhill, working with large corporations, whether it's the largest, you know, senior organization in the world or, you know, the largest, like, financial services company that's service, servicing the military. That's when it gets really exciting for us because we're net, then at that point solving real problems for consumers, individuals, families, and for businesses. Makes sense. Makes wow. Sense. So, so when we think about what's going on, right, and, and really about like doing a startup, it's hard, right? There, yeah. there are mentors or people around you. Like who do you look to as your mentors and, and what have you learned from them? Well, well, Ray, you're a mentor, aren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I second that. I second that. <laughs> uh, no, no, so so we like to talk about how nobody nobody builds a company by themselves. Right. And then a lot of times people will ask me particularly, like, when did I start this company? And I'll say, I started this company 30 years ago. And they go, that's a really odd answer. You've only been around for two years. But I said, my God, it takes like, one, you don't build a company by yourself, so it takes like years of network or people that you've accumulated or experiences from mentors that you've had over the years of being in the enterprise software industry, and you either rely on them to help you with advice or you rely on them to help you with a business lead, or, you know, it basically kind of being in the valley so long, right, you just have to take advantage of that. And yeah. I certainly have, and have been very fortunate, and yeah. Eugene would agree with that, I'm sure. Of course, yeah, everyone is mentor, especially these days. For me, my team is my mentor. So for example, my confidence actually comes from my product or you know, um, what we're trying to solve. More I know about what, you know, what we're building and about security and how we're going to target the market, then I can always talk to other people more and then they will mesmerize my, my product or what, you know, my passion, right? So for example, he's one of my mentor. My CTO, who's an expert in security, who knows more than like, you know, security about life, life side more than anybody, right? So he's my mentor. So if I have a question, I always ask him and then I learn. And we also learn from other people that we evolve. So I think everyone's, you know, our mentor, but these days my team member is the biggest uh, mentor for me. So uh, our CTO is actually yeah, a, a real, real he's a real rocket scientist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've met him. I've met him. So you, so you get a reverse mentoring approach, Yunjin, and I think that's really, really interesting. And, and you're right, Chris. We definitely see a lot of this in the Valley, having been here like 20-some, 30 years. I mean, yeah, the networks are crazy, right? There's so much to learn from each other. We are here with uh, Chris Wong and uh, Yunjin Chang, co-founders of LifeSite, a uh, very, very interesting uh, site, especially when we think about digital safe box meets life planning meets crisis management meets uh, everything all put in together. It's actually a very interesting approach uh, to thinking about uh, all, 
what to prepare for what's going on. You can follow both of them. Chris uh, Wong, you can follow him. He's got no personal Twitter, but you can follow him at Co. And of course, Yunjin Chang at Y-O-O-N-J-I-N underscore C-H-A-N-G. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, so, Thank you. Thank you. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Hey, <laughs> sign up for LifeSite. Make sure yeah. Tina gets that. That's right. There's yeah. a call to action. You're everything before something happens. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Well, that, very, was, very cool. that was super interesting and something I should think about. And, um, well, it's, uh, it's, it's a privilege and an honor for us to talk uh, with, our, with our next guest, uh, Soon Yu, who's an author, international speaker, a best-selling author, an international speaker, and a branding expert. Uh, he is uh, a best-selling author on innovation and design. Uh, Soon's work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The Entrepreneur, and many more uh, media outlets. He's an author of a new book, new best-selling book, Iconic Advantage, which we're going to talk about extensively on our interview. He regularly consults uh, business leaders on developing meaningful, iconic, uh, and signature elements, moments, and communication. Uh, he most recently served as Global VP of Innovation at VF Corporation, parent organization to over 30 global apparel uh, companies, including North Face, Vance, uh, Timberland, Nautica, Wrangler, uh, amazing, iconic brands. Uh, he's a founder of numerous venture-backed startups. Soon is also an adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design and often guest lectures at Stanford University. He's a must-follow on Twitter at S-O-O-N-S-P-E-A. KS soon speaks. Welcome soon to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala. Can I just hire you as my uh, PR rep? You're amazing, man. <laughs> you know, I had to cut your bio down to be honest with you because we only have 20 minutes. So you've got a lot. You've got a lot. And we're going to learn about that on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done a lot, and I've actually had a lot of uh, failures in, in the process of doing that, which I think Ray, who's been my mentor through most of my professional career, totally understands. <laughs> I'm the president of the failure club. Soon was the guy we always looked up to because he got branding, he got marketing, he got everything down straight, and he he, he was like the he was like the pro uh, in terms of taking any brand, any problem, and actually turning it around. So so this is why it's really special to to really have you here. I mean, you are the number one new release on Amazon when you launched on February sixth. Let's talk about iconic advantage. What is it? What is an iconic brand, and and what is that advantage that people inherently have that they might not even realize? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, it's one where I, I think for the last 20 or 30 years, I've been working in branding and, and marketing and design. And quite tr truthfully, Vala, you gave me such a great introduction, but what was missing is probably the 80% that actually, it's kind of like your, your uh, Facebook, you only show the 10% that's really good and 90% you kind of hide. Well, you, you probably had another 90% you were talking about and Ray knows about this. I spent most of my career actually trying to figure out why certain brands were really successful at innovation, at marketing, at product uh, development, and at commercializing all this, and why I, I struggled quite a bit at actually, uh, and a lot of my roles, I mean, it was, uh, you know, hard going. It was uh, oftentimes we, I probably had over 30 different product failures. And then on a personal level, Ray, you know this, I've, I've had a credit score of uh, 300. That's as low as you can get, and I've had it twice. And so... I really understand this idea intimately about uh, failure. And I was trying to figure out why other businesses, why other uh, brands are really successful at innovation. And when I started to look at and do a compare and contrast versus what I had done versus about 50 other companies and how they were taking a different approach, they were taking this iconic advantage approach. And it was, 
it was actually radically different than what I had been taught to do. You know, I had always been taught as the innovation guy or as the marketing guy to kind of go after and find those new innovation spaces, you know, find the game changers, the, the, the next S-curve. And so, yeah, my job was to go after and chase those shiny new objects. But what I found these other companies doing totally different is that they weren't chasing the new, they were actually innovating the old. And in fact, what they were doing is innovating where they already had strengths, where they already had market momentum and consumers who loved them and channels who accepted them and, you know, um, manufacturing supply chain logistics that were already proven. Mm. And they were taking that focus on where they were successful and making those products and brands and services more iconic. And so it was this actual investment in their iconicity that actually made them much more successful. And that's what Iconic Advantage is all about. It is really about uh, the, the focus on taking your shiny new ideas and applying it against your old iconic franchises. Sure. And, and, and uh, you know, you talk about what makes something iconic and you talk about uh, three distinct qualities uh, or three qualities. One is being distinct. Second is being relevant. You talk about not just relevant in the past, present, but also relevant in the future. And you talk about uh, being recognized. Now, the middle piece in terms of relevancy, I recall uh, a, a keynote that you gave and you used a pyramid when you talked about brand relevance. And you started with eyes, mind, heart, and soul. Can you talk about that pyramid and talk about these elements of relevance that you talk, that, 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 that you talk about? Sure. So, you know, when you think about branding um, and, and you think about exactly what you describe it from your eyes, your mind, your heart, and then eventually sort of what I would call your belief system. Well, it also translates to different levels of branding. There's what I call visual branding, where you see things and you recognize it from sight. Yeah. Then there's what I call functional branding that really speaks to you know, pros and cons and benefits that are very rational and functional. So that's functional branding. Then there is what I call much more emotional branding, where it speaks more to the heart. So that's sort of an elevation beyond the visual, beyond what you see to something that you feel. And then you get to a deeper space where it doesn't even matter sometimes what somebody tells you, whether it's rational or not, or even if it even overcomes some of your fears because it's, it's something so deep inside of you and Nate, it's just about your belief system and your values. And that speaks to you and it's a much higher order type of branding and that's when you reach iconicity. And the best way to think about it is, it's when you become a standard bearer for some distinctive relevance, exactly what you talked about, that then becomes meaningful to that person. And the great thing about iconic brands is that they do a lot more than just sort of speak to our values. They speak to um, what we believe about ourselves when we use the products. Mm -hmm. And then also, importantly, what it says about us to other people. And so a good example is, if, if I was to say to you, look, we're in Rome and we're going to find an iconic two-wheel brand to go and, and pep around, uh, you know, and see all the sights, we'd probably pick a Vespa, right? <laughs> that has a certain iconic sort of feel to it. And, 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 and you, when, you, when you ride it, you definitely feel like you're in Rome. When in Rome, you are Rome, right? And, but let's say you and I, well, we're going to go out and we're going to take uh, a, a road trip between Kansas and Montana. Molly Davidson. Big outdoors and, you know, big open, uh, you know, sky and all that. 
and we'd probably, two wheels, we'd probably take some Harleys, right? right. Yeah, and we'd have a totally different badass attitude about life, right? And they're both iconic brands, but they make us feel very differently about who we are. Uh, another example that's maybe uh, uh, also very relevant, I share this with my wife, I ask her sometimes, you know, are you a Burke or a Birch? Or do you wear Burke ah. Or do you wear Tory Burch? And, and she goes, I'm totally a Birch, okay? And I, I signed up for that when I married her, and it's totally cool. And, and, the, and the great thing is I went to visit Tory Burch. I asked them the same questions, and they said, look, you know, yeah, we, we own a lot of Tory Burch, but we also own Burks because there are times when we actually want to go out and, you know, we want to go on a picnic. We want to do something totally different. And um, when we wear that, we feel differently, and we say something differently about ourselves, and that's the power of having an iconic brand. Awesome. Now, you have a really good point here. How do you spot iconic value in your products and services? Because that's not easy. A lot of people miss it because they're living in it. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot written about, like, how you spot brand value. And, and I, all these companies do what they call their yearly or annual brand health equity trackers, right? Okay? And in it, they talk about the things that uh, Vala just said, the three qualities. They talk about distinction, okay? Like, you know, how distinctive are you versus your competition? And then they talk about brand relevance. Uh, and then lastly, they talk about, you know, what's your aided and unaided awareness or your recognition. But formulaically, you put those together, that doesn't speak to what we were talking about, this idea of speaking to your values and speaking to, you know, what you believe. I think a simple way to think about iconicity is not to be, you know, not to use all those big studies. I would ask somebody a very simple question. Look, if you met this brand or if you met this person, when they leave, what's the fragrance that they've left? What's the signature? <laughs> Hopefully it's not a bad one, right? But you know, what's their signature, okay? And when I think about what is your signature, if I was just to pull, you don't have to make it complicated. If I pulled three of your customers, would they, one, say the same thing? Mm. Okay, that's first and foremost. If they're not saying the same thing, then you got a problem right there, okay? But let's say they do say the same thing. Would it be different, differentiated, unique, or would it be a platitude that anybody else that was competing against you could also say about themselves? So. Would it be unique and would it be relevant and would it be differentiated? And so if you ask that of people and of brands and if people can say the same thing and they can say something that's very differentiated and it's really meaningful to them in a very deep way that speaks to their values, that's when you know you have something iconic and you don't need more than three people to help you sort of figure that out. I love that. I love it. I always said your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, when I was a CMO and people would present slides to me, I would tell them, if somebody found these slides in the middle of the street and, and, and you, you, know, you hide the logo, would they know it's our company? Uh, could you, can you distinguish, show your unique, uniqueness on slides? And, uh, and that was always hard to do. So you, you said, don't just chase the new, innovate the old. So our, our first guest, they're a startup. Um, so they may not have a heritage. Or, or, or so, and it may be a, you know, a, a, a new people working in, on a new idea and a new company. So how do you create this iconic advantage when it's, it's uh, you know, our first two guests uh, just launching a company in a new space and they don't necessarily have things in the past or core strengths that they can, they can, they can uh, relate to? That's a very 
I can tell why you're a host of this show. It's an amazingly great question. And so most people, when they pick up the book, they say, oh, this is for the Fortune 500 and for, you know, brands that are been struggling with uh, their heritage. They've done well in the past and, you know, they've sort of fallen off of the wagon. And so how might they correct course? Actually, I have a quote in the back of the book uh, from uh, Wen Shea, who's a partner at Kleiner Perkins, and he basically says, you know, iconic advantage is actually more important for startups than it is for big companies. Oh, wow. And why, and, I, and, and him and I have had a lot of this conversation about this. Oftentimes, startups, um, a lot of them will sort of find themselves in what I call two or three or four horse races, where everybody is sort of in the similar space, and they're all trying to sort of uh, rise above their competition um, in terms of trying to get to market faster or trying to get the market in a bigger way or, you know, trying to have more whatever the KPIs are important in their category. So they're trying to always be bigger, better, or faster, right? And here's my argument. And, and this is an argument that you, you, you take on from day one is that, you know, it's not the biggest and baddest or fastest mousetrap that actually gets the mice. It's often the one with the stinkiest cheese. So the goal when you're thinking about building iconicity is get some stinky cheese, okay? So how do we create some stink, all right? Well, here's how you create stink. First is, is there something distinctive, to your point, one of the three qualities, is there something distinctive, unique, and memorable about, um, for example, LifeSite, you know? And I think they do actually have a lot of different things. Yeah. And pick one or two and really make those your iconic signature elements, okay? Mm -hmm. And those could be everything from, I'll give you some examples of things that could work as iconic signature elements, but it could be as simple as, you know, if you have a product, it could be a product feature like the Nike Air Bubble. Okay, that's very iconic. It could be the Burberry uh, style. It could be a silhouette. If I said to you, Vala, think of a bottle with a lime in the neck of it, what product would you think of? Right, right. Corona, right? And so, and so silhouette could be another. But the most important one, and one that maybe LifeSite could think about right. is, What's your signature experience or your signature moment? Yeah. Um, recently, uh, TurboTax has been a really good example where, you know, people hate doing taxes. And so what they did is they actually thought about their signature benefit is always making the tax preparation process easier and easier. And so they keep innovating on that. And that's one of their big signatures. And recently, they came up with the uh, ability to actually just take snapshots of your W-2, of your 1090s, of your bank statements. And then from that iPhone snapshot, that photo, it will automatically populate the software for you or the app. Wow, that's a fantastic way to create a signature experience that they own. So um, I, I think for startups, I think they really need to think about from day one, it's not maybe being the fastest or the biggest or the baddest, but having things that are stinky, things that people can't help but talk about, okay? And people and things that people always remember them distinctly for. Do you need to have a strong culture to have that stinkiness? Do you need to have a North Star that's very common across the entire company before you can really have that momentum behind the stinkiness that you need? Or iconic advantage? I don't want to call it. It's a great question. Culture plays a big part in being able to actually create an iconic advantage strategy within a company. Um, let me sort of talk about it from two spectrums because you brought up. One is sort of the big company perspective and one is from a startup perspective. So from a big company perspective, I think the hardest thing to get big companies 
to think about is they oftentimes have things in the portfolios that are doing very well that are basically iconic franchises or close to being iconic and they are seen as cash cows right and the old bc bcg gross share matrix mindset is what do you do yeah milk those cows right and you feed those shiny innovation stars yeah, and yeah. so from a corporate portfolio management point of view it's really hard to get people shifting gears to think no don't just milk your freaking cows butter them up right <laughs> right and then you think about a big organization most people sign up to go into big organization most of them aren't going to be lifers but while they're there they probably want to be working on the new exciting fun stuff think about the stuff you want to put on your resume you don't want to talk about i work on clorox bleach version 8.3.7 um and ray always makes fun of me and i added lemon trees to the, to the bleach, you know woohoo you know? is everything man <laughs> He still talks about that. He does, he does. But actually, that's where the value is. And so part of it is also the internal cultural mind shift to get your designers, your marketers, your innovators excited about innovating the old when it is version 8.3.5. whatever, right? And so you have two challenges in a big organization to say, let's refocus and double down on where we've already been good versus getting distracted by all this shiny new objects out there, okay? I think for... Um, new startups, I, I think the challenge is this. I think it's trying to really understand what is the iconic benefit that they are going to deliver. And it's going to take them some, maybe some sort of pivots to, to get to that. But once they do, once they know that truly this is the benefit, like when we think about LifeSite, what is it? It's obviously security, but maybe it's also this idea of uh, even if you were to peel an onion, it's this idea of, of connection, uh, a sort of the peace of mind between you and your parents and generational peace of mind, right? So then the question is, what is the signature element or signature experience that could embody that key point of difference? And then what is the innovation plan that delivers against that versus trying to then go after all these new markets or go after you know these new business development deals? People, you know, going back to your question, Bala, those three things of distinction, relevance, and, and um, recognition, most people focus on recognition. They don't focus enough time on distinction and relevance. Yeah. So I would say for startups, definitely focus on those first two as much as you can. Terrific advice. Now, there's something that, that you, it's, it's stated, I think, that as part of this iconic advantage is that these iconic brands serve a purpose, right? They answer that classic why and why they exist. And, and sometimes people have a nostalgia behind that. Um, and we see a lot of people buying brand portfolios. They're basically buying old brands to resurrect later in the future. Any advice to people that do that? Because there's a lot, I'm seeing a lot more of that than before in these uh, companies that just buy brand portfolios. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great question. Right now, people that are buying brand portfolios, um, I think the one thing they need to think about is, um, one, you know, think of it as the new money ball for um, M&A. And that is iconic potential. I mean, if you buy a brand that has huge iconic potential, and again, it goes back to not just recognition. If you buy a brand that just has recognition and is a category generic, I don't know, okay? I mean, and, that, that, and a lot of people fall into that trap of just buying recognition. But if you buy something that speaks to, maybe it's a small audience, but speaks to it in a way that's indispensable because it's so distinct, it's so relevant, it's so meaningful, you can build on that. And so what I would really look at are those brands that have something very distinctive that's highly relevant 
could be to a niche, it could be just to a segment that for, you know, that's sort of, they, they, they've not invested against it. I would look for iconic potential focused on distinction and relevance and not necessarily worry about recognition. Thanks a lot, Sunny. I mean, you're, we're live here on Disrupt TV, the show about disruption and innovation. We're here with best-selling author number one new release on Amazon on February 8th, Iconic Advantage, Soon You. Follow him at Soon Speaks. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thanks a lot, Sin, for being on the show. We could have talked to you for an hour. You were terrific. <laughs> Thank you so much. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you know, what Ray and I typically think about for our final segment is to bring an iconic person to our show. And, <laughs> and, uh, we have our first ballot Hall of Fame. This uh, is way more iconic. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or just an average person with an iconic coffee. Uh, but we're, we're delighted to have Larry Dignan, Editor-in-Chief of ZDNet uh, and, and Smart Planet, as well as Editorial Director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Larry has been covering technologies for multiple decades. He's a must follow on Twitter at L Dignan, D-I-G-N-A-N. Also follow his blogs on ZDNet at, on Twitter at Z-D-N-E-T. Thank you so much, Larry, for coming back to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Anytime, how's it going, guys? You're doing terrific. It's nice to have Ray back from Davos. We've done four shows this week. At Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Ray was in the cold snow, you know, with all the famous people, so. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's start there. From afar, Why aren't you there, Larry? I know Larry loves going to conferences. Why didn't you go to the mountains of Davos? A, CBS won't send me. Um, <laughs> it's a little pricey. Yeah, yeah it is. Two, I, I don't know. Call me crazy. I think it's totally jumped the shark. Um, I, I just, I'm not sure I see the relevance of Davos anymore, in all honesty. It, it's kind of like a... <laughs> It's, it, it, I don't know. It kind of makes me throw up on my mouth a little bit. A bunch Wait, of people fly thoughts? in on a private jet to save the world, and then they fly out. <laughs> I mean, I see a few big ideas here and there, but for the most part, it's, it's everybody just talking their game. I mean, I get it, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to have that pizzazz it used to have just like four or five years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Having been oh. there the last two years, I would say that I, I discovered a third of the people are there to do good, right? They're really serious. Only a third? <laughs> Only a third. That's more than average population. <laughs> <laughs> so a third are there to do good. A third of them Hold on, hold on. Ray, Ray, Ray. What does it mean to do good? Like, like what does that mean? They're coming with a policy agenda. They are coming to, with a problem. They're looking for funding. They're real trying to save projects, real Commitment to resources. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they're, they're thinking about uh, No, no, hold on. We'll get to them. A All third right. of them are there to sell and do deals, right? So they're meeting. Everyone's there. So they're setting up meetings. They're doing one-on-ones. They're trying to think about deals, you know, and, and they're getting that. Piece so it's a networking them. event to sell. And a networking yeah. event. And then a third of the people there, like the politicians, are there to be seen, right? And, and it's kind of an event for them. Right, so it's, it's on the list of things like, we'll do, I'll see you in Davos and let's do Monaco later, right? So it's, it's that crowd and, and, and they're all together in one place, right? And so, so that, that's kind of like the scene at Davos. But the relevance was, what was so hot was blockchain. I cannot tell you how hot, it was in everything. We're gonna use blockchain to save the world. We're gonna use blockchain to, you know, feed dying, 
you know, I mean, they're using blockchain for everything. And there's like the investors were there, the entrepreneurs were there. Like there was even a sideshow called Crypto HQ that was going on that basically was like not sanctioned by Davos. Davos was like, oh no, if you attend that, we're going to revoke your hotel badge. Like they did all that. Then they wow. made up later. I mean, so there, was, there, was, there was friction around the topic of cryptocurrencies. There's friction about who got to present at Davos. And then Cloisters Group had another event going on in another city all about blockchain. Like blockchain converged at Davos from four different directions, even at Davos. And then of course Davos was talking about Was it blockchain the technology or was it the Bitcoin billionaire, you know, uh, it's kind of vapor billionaire to me, but. Um, Everything from crypto. Well, 50 Cent just found $8 million in, in, in Bitcoin accidentally. <laughs> oh, I know. But it's everything from cryptocurrencies to how can we use blockchain to help healthcare records or change supply chain, new right. land. Like we had the premier of Bermuda at, at my blockchain panel talking about how they were actually building, you know, the ability to actually invest in Bermuda in a way that would be very, very different, right? Making it so easy to look at land titles or official documents, right? And, so, and, wait, is, 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 and this isn't just fear of missing out on, on, on a, a mega trend that's, you know, being covered a lot in media, were they folks really showing actual prototypes or, you know, early, early stage uses of the technology outside of cryptocurrency, outside of, outside of cryptocurrency? Oh, there's the whole cryptocurrency side. That was one area, right? Yeah. And there was the actual, we're building blockchain records and that was definitely happening as well. So we saw yeah. the mix and the gamut, everything, right? Every single, you know, Vendor that was there had a blockchain panel that was going on. WEF had all these blockchain panels that was going on, right? Every person was trying to show that they had blockchain prowess, right? That oh, was they're hot. Just making stuff up at this point. Others <laughs> <laughs> were making stuff up. I mean, I mean every every company's got some blockchain thing. Like <laughs> with AI, with AI, I of could, course. I could I could run a janitorial supply thing, <laughs> and then I could show up and be like blockchain. Yeah. That actually happened in the dot com bust. How much you know, change my Twitter handle to say Vala after a blockchain? But anyway. <laughs> Bring more followers. It's weird. I mean, I believe in blockchain to technology. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The cryptocurrency thing, I think, is going to, it just muddies the water. Because to me, it's completely apples and oranges type thing. Yeah, yeah the panel we... One's going to be huge for supply chain and contracts and all that. The other one's mm -hmm. kind of sideshow that we know is going to blow. It's just a question of when. Well, no, that's why the panel we had was, you know, beyond the hype of Bitcoin, where will blockchain go, right? Right. And really talking about that shit. It's hard to ignore the cryptocurrencies because one, it's a $600 billion market. Two, the most successful implementation of blockchain is Bitcoin and the, and the derivative currencies. So, you know, it's, 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 it's just hard to ignore that shiny thing that's happening that, you know, a month ago was $20,000 a coin, but, um, and today's 11000 But But no, definitely... Right. Well, even grandmoms are asking about cryptocurrency now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's crazy. That's all things just... Stocking stuffer. Now, I can I get my son I mean, asking for Bitcoin? You get questions about this stuff now. It's really bizarre. It's like, oh, but we're back on the sock pop days. All right, so let's talk about Amazon Go. What's going on with that, right? Let's switch. Talk about Amazon Go. This Yeah, it's Amazon Go launched this week officially. You know, they let some journalists in to see it. I wasn't one of them, but whatever. Um, and it was, you, you weren't, you weren't in line outside the building, which is so yeah, well, ironic. Well, that was the most bizarre thing. I don't, I don't really get that per se. It's like waiting, you're waiting around the block to basically get into a glorified 7-Eleven. Like, you're just kind of like, eh. To avoid lines, to avoid yeah, lines. Yeah, to avoid lines, even better. Um, 
what's really weird is um you know amazon's sort of like well this technology isn't quite there yet it's like a big beta blah 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 i i think this is going to be all packaged up as an amazon web services at some point wow. i mean you, you look at the under Think you look at the underlying tech, you know, the, the AI, the computer vision, all that stuff. It's, it's all, the, they're probably, they're using AWS now on the back end, right? So why not just package it up for others on some level, right? It may not be retailers, it may not be grocery stores, but that, that implementation of it, they're just going to package it up and use it anywhere. So I, I almost view the Amazon Go thing as less about Whole Foods and more about what's AWS going to sell in two years. But, but Whole Foods gives them the platform to test and oh, yeah. scale the capabilities. So you go from what you said, a modern 7-Eleven. Imagine if they could, in a course of 12 to 24 months, find a way to have a couple of proto Whole Foods uh, migrate to that you know, frictionless, constant fluid motion customer experience. Now you're right. Why, why not package it and offer it to Nordstrom's or whomever? Yeah, I, I, want, I, think, I want to be part of the, I want to be part of the hackathon where we, you <laughs> see if the five finger discount comes into play and who does. Right. I <laughs> promise you they're white hackers that are trying to break the system as we speak in terms of their scaling approach. But yeah. I, I think it's going to be the new self or express checkout. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the self-serve kiosk, anything more than three items, you see people trip up. Yeah. So for those who are shopping experiences, maybe you could just walk out, do it by app, go. Um, so I don't, I don't see it as like this wholesale, let's replace all the humans in stores. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's more, more about the self-service kiosk, express lanes, things like that. You, you wrote a blog that covered uh, this topic across, uh, you know, th three dimensions. It was, the human factor, uh, and you talked about process complications, like returning products, the privacy element where you've got this incredible surveillance system that's involved, impact on jobs, impact on retail, and whether there'll be fast followers. But you also talked about impact on Amazon itself from a PR point of view. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so you float these semi-crazy type of things, and <laughs> you... Just it just screams innovation, sure. right? Sure. It screams, "Hey, Amazon's just cooking up crazy stuff in the lab, right?" They've almost they've almost taken over what Apple used to have yeah. in terms of mojo, right? Because I mean, Amazon, oh, yeah. sure. they've just whether it's the Echo, Alexa, they've kind of built this a floating a warehouse. Area. They got a patent on a floating warehouse where drones can recharge on streetlights. I mean, right? That's cool stuff. Um, it's amazing what you can do when you really don't get pressured to make a ton of money, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they're profitable, but you know, let's face it, they're not like, they're not killing it, right? Um, so they get to do, well, AWS is killing it, the, the e-commerce, oh, sure. I'm, not, I'm not even sure why they bother with it, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it, it creates that, that PR innovative thing that attracts engineers, it attracts employees. It attracts probably 50 years of tax breaks if they build that second headquarters in your town. Tesla's, Tesla and SpaceX are, you know. Yeah. And it's it's just so there, there's a lot of, it's great marketing. I mean, it's just really cool stuff. And, you know, I think that gets overlooked a good bit. But, you know, it helps the valuation, keeps that stock moving so they can do more crazy experiments. And it's a really nice flywheel.
and it's kind of hard to, you know, especially to innovate in a retail space. They're one of the few people that can actually do it. I mean, cause yeah. they're all, all the other retailers, they're leveraged with so much debt, they can't really do a whole lot anyway. Culture, absolutely. So Larry, breaking news, tell us where they're gonna have their second headquarters. <laughs> My favorite is Raleigh-Durham. Oh, I was, I was hoping you'd say Boston, come on. <laughs> no, well, I think Boston might be likely, it's definitely yeah. up there. Um, I like Raleigh for a few reasons. One, if you are, you have that talent pool, right? You got Research Triangle, you got all these universities there. Yeah. You got Red Hat there. So now you can poach a lot of hybrid cloud, very knowledgeable data center people, hire them over to AWS. <laughs> then you got SAS down there, SAS, whatever they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, hello, it's like nothing but analytics wonks, yeah. right? You got you got a whole data center ecosystem, right? Everybody's building stuff down there. Universities, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got Apple with places down there. I mean, there's just there is an infrastructure, a talent pool, and a cost base that's just not. It's good, right? I mean, you go to Austin. Austin's played out. It's expensive. I mean, Jesus, what really? Boston, not cheap. Not cheap. Right? Yeah. Philly, I'd love to see them in Philly. But not seeing it. Where are you gonna put them? Yeah. Right? You need you need stuff. You need. I mean, yeah. I, I could give them the naval yard. Like that would be fun. King of, um, Prussia. King of Prussia. Just give them the mall, right? Take out the mall. Um, which actually that would be interesting. But you, you know. But when I look at it all, I gotta you think. You got a strong argument. You have a strong argument. Yeah. Yeah, they want to be East Coast because they want to be near hubs and distribution and all that stuff. They want a talent pool. And for what Amazon does, I got to I gotta think that's – Raleigh's got to be one of the – and it's funny. I don't see every, – when everybody's doing their favorites, like the Journal had a story today about that. They had like four, you know, Philly. Raleigh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the, people aren't mentioning Raleigh. But when I look at them, I'm like, it's got to be it. This is got to be running, right? I mean, because it's – it all adds up in ways that I'm not sure. I didn't think about it until you just gave all those, uh, you know, the, it's a strong point of view. I got to agree. Yeah. I, I, had, I had this talk over beers like last Friday. <laughs> well, my, my, my bet was on Atlanta, but uh, we'll see. Atlanta. Atlanta's another one. It, it's very, it's got a lot Alpharetta. of similar, similar characteristics. Yeah. Somewhere north of Alpharetta, you got the same characteristics, great pool, great Fortune 500 base, right? And great distribution yeah. and East Coast. But uh, I like Rally too. Rally's got good, good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Let's talk Apple Health Records, man. This was really, really cool. I mean, you, you, you talked a bunch in your article really about what's happening between the intersection of privacy, the way that they're well-situated, the partnerships that they built over time, um, and, and that there seems to be some movement, EMRs. Um, why? What's going on? I mean, why is Apple poised to win this market? Well, I, I think what's, what's interesting here is Apple hasn't been great at the cloud. Right. Like Google, you know, they're going to have your data. They're going to be really helpful. They're going to be a little creepy here and there, but generally speaking, you get stuff, right? Um, Apple has been like, you know, your data is not leaving the device to the cloud, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, even, even the security gap would ask and the US can't crack an iPhone is what you're saying. Right. And, and all that stuff, which frankly, in most cases, I view as a complete weakness. Hmm. Right. Like they can't take your data and do all this AI stuff in the cloud because, well, they can't. Right. <laughs> they're, they're not Google. 
right? It's a weak, it's a weakness in a lot of places, right? Healthcare is not one of them. And the fact they can take their enterprise base and connect to Epic and all these hospitals and, you know, because the healthcare industry has already done the heavy lifting on all the portals, electronic medical records, all that stuff. Now Apple just gets to kind of waltz in and go, hey, let's be the aggregator. And they can do it in a way that you actually trust more because of their cloud weakness, right? So... I, I don't, I'm not sure if Google did this. I think Google actually tried this not that long ago. <laughs> they were just a little early. Um, I remember Microsoft talking about this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of companies that have been chasing this, you know, medical record aggregator type thing. Um, but I think Apple's the one you're kind of like, all right, guys, it kind of makes sense. Plus all that healthcare data they have from the Apple Watch that's ultimately mm-hmm. going to be valuable. And they get the, the deals with the medical... Um, uh, equipment makers and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, they have they have enough stuff to where it it starts to look like something real. Um, and Apple can do it in a way that like Fitbit can't. I mean, Fitbit, Fitbit's done. It's a Phil Schiller Jedi mind trick. Our cloud weakness is now our cloud strength. Healthcare <laughs> kind of is right. I'm not sure I want that stuff shuttling up and down. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. So, but that's that's why I think they're actually, you know, aside from the enterprise chops, the, the partnerships they already have, I mean, kind of makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now you've got Alphabet launching a, a security company, Chronicle, uh, out of their uh, their X unit. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about that? What are your thoughts about Google providing this security service, cybersecurity intelligence? And, and analytics platform. I think it's going to be a great bundle with Google Cloud Platform and all the other stuff. Um, they provided absolutely no product detail whatsoever. It was kind of like we're using, you know, we're using the cool stuff we have behind the scenes. Okay, guys, got any detail? Not really, right? They're, well, they're an iconic brand, so they can do that. They can, right? They can. <laughs> and they're working with, you know, they're working with Fortune 500 companies, yeah. and I mean, they're pre, they're really pre-product anyway, yeah. but. You know, if you're going to launch a company, you'd expect a little more other than we're doing this security and, you know, intelligence platform. Right. Gee, thanks. So there's a lot of other people. <laughs> um, that said, it'll ride shotgun with Google Cloud Platform, and it seems like it's a nice tack-on type thing to infrastructure as a service and all that good stuff. Absolutely. By the way, there's lots of chats about Denver as a possible location. Created a, <laughs> Thank you, Aubrey. created a crap storm uh, where folks are wondering why we're talking about Boston, Atlanta, and Raleigh. So, <laughs> well, what I mean, you have name the universities in Denver. Yeah, other than Denver, you I can't. <laughs> Alexa, where will the new Amazon headquarters be? Alexa, where will the new Amazon headquarters be? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, maybe she knows. She yeah, I don't trust Alexa because if you ask her who's going to win the Super Bowl, she says Philly. So as she should. <laughs> she it's should. a better team. Oh, we got the rivalry. We are we live need, here. We just with need Larry. to make that forty-year-old quarterback look like he's forty, and I think we will. Because <laughs> the rest of the team totally stacks up. Oh, Fletcher Cox. We're going to invite you in two weeks back on the show, no uh, where, I get, where I get to gloat. All right, all right. So Cox, what's the Fletcher spread? Cox what's will be that? What's your favorite charity? Who are you going to donate to between you and you and Vala? What, what, what's the bet on? 
I, I'm, I'm going to say 27-23 Patriots. And right, I will Larry, you know, you? Larry's favorite charity where he can pick that up. <laughs> I'll say 34-21 Eagles. Oh, wow. right. it's a blowout. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. No. The Larry Bala Challenge and one of their favorite charities. You're going to Larry. go big or go home. Right? That's awesome. That's awesome. The whole, the whole stadium is going to be Eagles fans. The average margin of victory for Pat's five wins, I think, is three and a half points. So right. that last, last year, six points was the largest margin. So I can't imagine them winning with more than you know, a field goal difference. But, the, uh, the Eagles aren't going to get all cautious like Atlanta did last year. They, I, I hope Atlanta they, stepped off their throat. They, Next year on ESPN Five, we'll have all Ashar and Larry Dingen here. We have to close the show out. This has been awesome. We're here with Larry Dingen, editor in chief at ZDNet, with sports picks on the Super Bowl. Nice bet with Bala and a good enterprise wrap up. You can follow Larry every day at L D I G N A N for awesome articles and tweets. Uh, and more importantly, thank you for being on the show, Larry. We'll call you in two weeks. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. He, one of my favorite guests, uh, hands down. He's uh, he's uh, terribly smart and right to the point, you know. So, uh, and very insightful. Like I didn't think about Raleigh with all the advantages that uh, Larry mentioned. So, hey, three universities: UNC, NC State, Duke, right there, oh, and all the other companies. And the Triangle Park is a perfect place for. Uh, I still think Boston has, has, has a stronger advantage, but the cost of living in Boston could be a key uh, limiting factor for 50,000 know, new, new employees. Uh, so. And then North Carolina is a purple state. It's in transition. So you yeah. get that interesting balance, just like Washington was for a while. So right, right. Very interesting. Point. Very so who do we have next week? It's episode 92, really 95 in my mind, since we had to lift through three days. You got to have Aubrey do, you know, more aggressive marketing for us. We're in 95. Exactly. I agree. We have doc, the Dr. Patty Fletcher, uh, author of Disruptors. Uh, so she's going to talk about her, her book with us. It's success strategies from women who break the mold. So fantastic first guest. We have Toby, oh my goodness, I gotta say this. Oh, oh, and, <laughs> and Alexei Zaposnikov, co-founder of Proof V. And so uh, I'm gonna have to practice for next week for sure, because I am famous for butchering names. <laughs> and, uh, Please, Olshaneski and Zaposnikov. But, yeah, there uh, we go, Ray. Uh, we hang out with the Russians and Thomas. Maybe you do the intros next week. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and our final guest is, again, a Hall of Fame iconic uh, guest. We have Ron Miller of TechCrunch, and we'll talk about, you know, all of the fantastic work that he's uh, doing at TechCrunch, covering startups, disruptive technology, enterprise software, and so on and so forth. So an amazing show for episode 95. <laughs> Hey, and a quick programming note, the whole Constellation shortlists are being updated. You're going to see them in the next few weeks. Our Pestle framework, um, which is our futures framework, is going to be launched in the next few days. You can saw a sneak peek in our blogs. And more importantly, we've got some, some great videos that are coming from Davos and from, a lot from this week that you can guys check out um, on the website and at Disrupt TV Show. So thanks a lot for an awesome week. And Hey, look, we've got Aubrey back. Hi, Aubrey. I was going to say, if we counted all of our on the road, we would probably be at episode 100. So. Oh, let's do this. <laughs> let's up those numbers. Uh, by the way, one of the world's top uh, online uh, video producers, 
Aubrey uh, Coggin. So thank you for helping make all of this happen. Today, <laughs> this you. is our fourth show this week. So I'm pretty sure you haven't had much sleep this week. Thank you very much. I never thank have you. much sleep, but thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Have Thanks a, a lot. Hey, it's Friday. It's Rupp TV. Catch us 11 a.m. Pacific and 2, 2 p.m. Eastern time every Friday. Thanks a lot, everyone.